All right, well, we've got the kids in the service with us this morning. Uh, so kids, as per usual, if you can scratch up a pen or paper for mom or dad and draw me a, a picture from the sermon, um, I, I may have even some Christmas-esque type candy for you uh, after the service. But you've got to draw me something. I'm going to make a new rule. You ready? It can't be me. Mm, oh, cheaters are all so disappointed. All right. Well, um, I think it's interesting looking at these candles burning and just the the unfinishedness of one left unlit and that longing that sits there, the darkness in the middle. Um, I think Christmas is inherently a season of contrast, isn't it? We don't like to admit it. We'd rather avoid it. At Christmas time, we want to believe that everything is wonderful. We sing about peace on earth. We watch our favorite Christmas movies with their perfect happy endings. We try as hard as we can to fill our days with thoughts of, of Christmas nostalgia. But there's a contrast there. Maybe that's why Christmas is so magical when you're young, because everything is wonderful and you're just kind of insulated from a lot of the things going on around you. One of my favorite Christmas traditions from when I was a child was, was going out into the, into the bush, into the back 40, and cutting down our own Christmas tree out of the woods and, and bringing that home. Um, there's, just, there's nothing like it. It's magical. Picturesquely walking through this winter wonderland, your feet falling slowly, softly through the, the knee-deep snow, the cold air on your face, and the gentle snow falling. And there's just nothing better than shaking the snow off that one potential tree and, and knowing this is the one. This is going to be our Christmas tree and, and bringing it home. Uh, of course, that's a tradition I wanted to bring home to, to my kids, to my family. And I think some of you know how this story ends. Uh, the past few years have typically culminated in, in me with, with my axe in one hand and the other hand pulling our perfect Christmas tree through the fresh snow, singing loudly at the top of my lungs. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap- happiest season of all. And there's a reason I sing, and a reason I sing particularly loudly, and that is to drown out the crying and wailing of these four kids following behind me with their feet frozen and their tears freezing to their cheeks. Um, it's a wonderful memory. Uh, as long as I sing loud enough. Isn't that what we often do at Christmas? Isn't that us? Sing a little louder, turn on another movie, make another meal. Whatever it takes, just don't stop. Just don't pause long enough to let those thoughts creep in about the things that aren't as they should be, the things that aren't perfect, happy endings. We don't want to admit that our lives aren't perfect. They, they aren't what we'd like them to be at Christmas. There's pain. There's suffering. There's broken relationships. People coming that maybe you wish weren't coming. People who have been there every Christmas, as long as you can remember who this year won't be there. Our world just isn't that perfect Christmas movie with a happy ending. We try to push it down. Try not to think about it. Don't talk about it. Don't bring it up. Another yoga class, another long day of work, another bottle, uh, another hour of mindlessly flipping through internet pages. Put a few more feel-good quotes on Facebook. Um, I want to invite us this morning, 
though, as we consider Christmas, maybe to take a bit of a different approach. I want to embrace us, I want to encourage us to embrace this contrast at Christmas. I want us to think about what it means that the light has shone into the darkness. Luke 1, 79, um, Zechariah, the father of, of John the Baptist, um, says this about Jesus before he was born, uh, that he came, that he would come to, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Matthew uses these words, Matthew 4.16, he says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those who dwell in the region and in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Both of these writers are, are referring to uh, the same Old Testament passage. They're, they're looking back to a promise uh, of 700 years previous. They're looking at that unlit candle that had been cold and dark for seven hundred years since this prophecy they're looking at isaiah chapter 9 and i want to invite you to turn there with me um, isaiah chapter 9 if you don't have a bible on you just go ahead and slip up your hand and one of our ushers will grab you a bible um, we want you to have god's word open on your lap um, that you can see this is this is the lord's word not mine this morning So look at with me, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 2 through 7. Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of, the government, of His government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now it might be easy to read that passage and think, this is great. This is, this is just another good distraction from the, the pain in my life. This is a happy verse. These are good promises that we can think about. And that's true. But I think if we read carefully before we get to that, these first words call us to acknowledge the darkness. To acknowledge the darkness. If we're going to really understand Christmas, that's where we have to start. Isaiah doesn't minimize the darkness. He doesn't try to sweep it under the rug or brush it off, pretend like it's not there. He admits it. He admits these people are dwelling in darkness, even deep darkness. Isaiah is writing these words to Israel in a time when they were not in a good place. Isaiah, like many of the prophets, prophesied at a time of Israel's disobedience to God, rebellion against Him. If you remember your, your biblical history, um, after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was uh, split into two different 
nations, essentially. Um, year 922 B.C., 922 years before Jesus was born. Um, do we have that map up there, Matt? Did I send that to you? Yeah, I did. So it's a little longer usually, but that's okay. We'll work on formatting. That's my fault. Um, so the northern part, the top part, uh, kept the name Israel, the, the kingdom of Israel. Um, if you're reading through prophecy, sometimes you're going to see uh, it's called Ephraim because that was one of the bigger tribes there, or sometimes Samaria. That was the capital city in that northern kingdom of Israel. Um, the southern part, the bottom part, is called Judah um, because basically it is the tribe of Judah. Um, Benjamin and Simeon are thrown in there, but they were, they were pretty small. Um, and Jerusalem is also in Judah. So that was very significant. Um, if you ever wondered why we call them Jews, that's why. It's a derivative from, from Judah. They were Jews. The northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel, um, fell into wickedness earlier than the southern kingdom. Um, they were led at this time by a king named Pekah, and he, was, he would be the last king of Israel. Um, and then King Rezin, who was in Syria. Um, Syria is up to the well, that northeast, the kingdom of Aram and Damascus, as it's also called. Um, and Rezin and Pekah had teamed up and were scheming to destroy Judah. Can you imagine one half of Israel going in to wipe out another half of Israel? Um, this is tragic. This is, this is a low point. Ahaz was king in Judah at this time, and he also was a wicked king. Isaiah went to him and told him, trust in God. God will deliver you. Put your faith in the Lord. But Ahaz, um, kind of self-righteously, he puts on this air of righteousness. No, I won't test God. I'm not going to ask him for a sign. But, but he's doing that because he already has his own plans. Uh, he's already decided he doesn't trust God. Um, he's going to trust in Assyria. Not, not Syria, Assyria. The Lord gives him a sign anyway. Uh, in spite of himself. And, and that's where this promise of Emmanuel comes into play in Isaiah 7. Listen to these words, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. There, that's a rebuke from God to Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So the Lord through Isaiah is telling Ahaz that, a, that an unmarried woman, a widow, is going to have a child. And before that child is able to make good decisions and bad decisions, before he's able to tell right from wrong, those two kings of, of Israel and Syria will be wiped out. They will be removed from, uh, from the threat. The threat will be removed. But instead of trusting the Lord, Ahaz continues to trust uh, in Assyria and and the king there. Assyria was a quickly growing nation, even more wicked than than Israel in the north, even more wicked than Syria. Um, The stories from Assyria, uh, well, the kids are in service today. I can't share them with you. Um, It's horrendous. But Ahaz's plan was to, to have salvation through Assyria. And so he went into the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and pulled out all of the gold and the, uh, the artifacts of worship. And he took those to Assyria as, as payment, basically as a bribe to protect us. That was Ahaz's hope. 
And of course, in a matter of a couple of years, as Ahaz had hoped and as God had promised, those two nations were wiped out. Um, The Lord did it through Assyria, but Ahaz made it clear his hope was not in the Lord. It was in those uh, human kings. Assyria would wipe out Israel in the north. They deported 27,000 Israelites, rounded them up, took them out of their homes, and spread them out across the kingdom of Assyria, just basically to do away with the nation. Spread them out. They, they won't continue on as a people. You wonder why the, the Jews have such a fierce national identity. This is why. This is how they've been dealt with in their history. This was God's punishment against that northern kingdom of Israel for their continued disobedience and turning away from Him. But through chapter 8 in Isaiah, God continues to warn Ahaz, don't trust in Assyria. They're going to betray you. They're they're going to attack you as well. And they will send the rest of the people of God into exile. And so Isaiah's message to Ahaz is continual through here. Don't fear man. Trust the Lord. Trust in God. Verse 16 of chapter 8 says, Take my teaching, this is Isaiah writing, and my testimony and seal it up among my disciples. Um, he wants this to be passed on from generation to generation. Keep this. And he tells them how the people of Israel ignored God, how they looked for answers in, in fortune tellers and those who claimed to speak to the dead exactly against what God had commanded. And verse 21 this is where it will take them. Their, their mistrust of God, they're seeking for hope everywhere else. And Isaiah says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward. They've ignored God. They've abandoned God. And so God is leaving them their own devices. Fine, go your own way. They will be distressed. They will be hungry. And when they get hungry, they're going to get angry at God and shake their fist at Him, even though the reason they are hungry, the reason they're in this situation is precisely because they've turned their back against God, disregarded Him, rejected Him and His blessings by their disobedience. Because of that, they would find themselves in verse 22. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish and they will be so they will be thrust into thick darkness that's what we're looking at as we come into Isaiah chapter 9 that's where the the people of Judah find themselves darkness half the nation's been wiped out their temple has been looted and emptied to bribe a pagan king to save them it's dark and it doesn't look good Assyria's coming They're distressed. Many are enraged at God. They're living in darkness and gloom. They've abandoned God and His way. And they're living in the painful consequences of that. And I think all of us, as we read through this, should be able to say, you know what? Kind of relate to this. This is the reality that we live in. Um, we've, We've turned our backs on God. And as a result, we feel pain and suffering. As parents, some of, the, some of the hardest moments to watch, and yet it's really some of the easiest moments to be a parent, isn't it? When you tell your kid not to do something, and they do it anyway, like, like touching the stove, right? And, and you, there's, there's nothing left to do but to sit back and go, how's that going for you? 
Do you enjoy disobeying? How did that work out? I told you you would fall on your face. I told you you would get burned. I told you it would hurt. And now it does. Some of the suffering that we face is like that. It's in direct response to our own sin. We've broken God's law. We've made poor decisions. We've been selfish. We've been prideful. And there's consequences. Direct consequences. Other suffering that we face sometimes is is less directly connected, but it's still the result of sin. The death of a loved one. The news of cancer or some illness. Just the, the nebulous battle against that darkness of depression that keeps pushing its way in. And as a, a result of, of living in this just fallen, broken world infected with sin, we encounter suffering of many different kinds. We feel the consequences of the sin in this world. Maybe some this morning are tempted like Israel was to now shake their fist at God. Why have you done this? Why have you let this happen, God? Why me? Why this pain? Why this darkness? We need to acknowledge that the suffering, the pain, the darkness, it's, it's real, it's present, it's there. Don't make light of it. Don't try to ignore it or push it down. It touches all of us. And we don't always know why. Why some and not others? There's a group of people who were feeling this in Jesus' day. Luke 13 they come to Jesus asking about a group of, of Jews, probably friends and family of theirs, who are offering their sacrifices at the temple. And, and for some reason that Jesus doesn't say, we don't know, um, Pilate had them executed. He killed them right there in the temple so that their blood ran in with the blood of their sacrifices. There were others uh, minding their own business near the city uh, of Siloam standing around by a tower when it fell, and it crushed and killed 18 people. Again, friends and family, why? Why, why this, hapless, this random evil? And they're desperately asking Jesus, why? why this suffering? Why these people? Were they more wicked than others? And Jesus says, no. No, not necessarily. Uh, Luke 13, 5, he, he boils it down to this, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's not necessarily that they were more evil than others, but that our world is infected with sin, all of us. And we all face catastrophe. We all face death and God's judgment if we don't repent. Sin leads to death. We're all under that curse and and we need to repent. We try to ignore that and gloss over the darkness around us. We, we destroy the logic of Christmas. We, we, we take the, the stool right out from underneath it. We move the reason for Jesus coming. We need to acknowledge the darkness at Christmas. We need to collectively look around and say, how is this working out for us? How is this rebellion going? What's the net gain of our sin in this world? We need to acknowledge the darkness. The reason for this darkness is is our own sinfulness. We just need to own that. And then not only do we need to acknowledge the darkness, but we need to push beyond that because only once we acknowledge the darkness can we move to the next step that I think Isaiah calls us to, and that is to 
approach the hope of Christmas. Acknowledge the darkness at Christmas and then approach the hope of Christmas. Let's go back into Isaiah 9. You'll notice Isaiah is giving this prophecy, um, but he's speaking in past tense. He's speaking as if it's already happened. It's, it's kind of a, a literary device, the way he's talking. He's speaking as if he is one of those in the future who's looking back at this, who's living in this time. Uh, and partly by that, he's saying it's that sure. It's that guaranteed that it will happen, that I can talk about it as if it already has. Look at this prophecy for this nation that lives in, in darkness and exile Pick up at verse 2 here again in in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Again, verse 2 calls us to acknowledge that darkness at Christmas. Verses 3 to 5 calls us to approach the hope of Christmas. Strangely enough, hope is a scary thing. My, my wife is a bit of a, a pessimist. Um, she says she's a realist, but that's what every good pessimist says. It's far too optimistic to admit that I'm a pessimist. Um, her life plan is to always expect the worst possible scenario, and then she's pleasantly surprised around every corner. I'm, I'm sure as we drive home today, wow, the house didn't burn down. That's great. I totally expected it to be gone. Um, she just lives in that. Um, makes it really easy to be a husband. I mean, all I, if I even remember her birthday, I'm like way out ahead of expectations. It's great. Um, but at one level, I get it. Because hope is dangerous. Hope is risky. Being optimistic brings up that possibility of being disappointed, being let down. We come face to face with darkness and suffering and sadness. We, we hesitate at hope. Is it safe? Dare, dare I put my hope out there? And not only is it scary, but, but sometimes it feels inappropriate, out of place, disrespectful. It's, it's like laughing at a funeral. How, how dare we? Is there anything that could really make joy appropriate in this time? That could outshine this darkness, that's good enough to overcome this evil, that could take this mess and this pain that we live in and and make it all okay. And it's almost insulting to even suggest it, isn't it? You don't understand the pain that I'm in. I can't just hope. I can't just rejoice in this. Isaiah says we can. Isaiah calls us to approach that hope. The light coming into the darkness is that strong, is that bright. Isaiah goes on to lay out the promise um, that this light brings, calling us to this hope. Verse 3, the the Lord will multiply the nation. The people of Israel faced annihilation. That was a very real possibility and fear for them. The people of the northern kingdom had already been strategically deported and, and sent out all across the known world. The only Israelites left in that northern kingdom were the the poor and the weak and the unimportant. 
If the whole nation, north and south, ceased to exist, how would God's promises to Israel and through Israel come about? But God is promising He will multiply the nation. Now I think, looking back, we can see this is God's promise of of bringing the Gentiles in, making this this new nation that we've been talking about through Ephesians. And then He says, You will rejoice before the Lord as with joy at the harvest. Like when dividing the spoils of war. When the harvest came in, it was time to celebrate. That was a good time. I don't know how many grew up as, as farmers' kids, but, but there's the toil of harvest and the work of, of getting everything together. And I just know I can't text you guys anymore because you're all busy. Um, it just, it, and it culminates, and the harvest is done, and there's rest. I think even more so in that day when their, their livelihood was directly connected to that harvest. It was bringing in the food that we have for this year. And and if the harvest is successful, we we celebrate. We have enough. We're going to live another year. The storehouses are full. We're going to make it. The work is done. Let's eat and rejoice. They would have a party. Um, This was the festival of Pentecost. Every year it was celebrating the, the completion of the harvest. This was a time of great joy across the nation. And then he says they'll rejoice as those who divide the spoil. Um, dividing the spoil was like winning the lottery. Like, this is as good as it gets. Imagine, uh, maybe it's a stretch, but imagine if Canada were to invade the United States and, and win and, and basically push all of the Americans into Mexico and leave the United States uninhabited, wiped out. Dividing the spoil is us going in and finding all of these houses and stores and shopping malls uninhabited, not owned by anyone. And we just get to say, I'll take this one. Do you want that one? Hey, do do you need an extra car? There's six in this garage. Um, We're looking for the best houses with the best stuff, and it's just just ours. It was huge. That's what Isaiah is talking about. They'll rejoice as those who are dividing the spoils. Why? Why this celebration? Because the war would be over. Verse 4, because the power of sin would be broken. God will have taken the burden off of our backs. He will have broken the staff of our oppressor. And he says this interesting, in the day, as in the day of Midian. Why, why Midian? What's he, what's he talking about? What comes to your mind when you think about Midian? Any, any guesses? Any guesses? What comes to your mind when you think of Midian? Gideon? The Midianites? What do you think about? Gideon, right? He's, he's referencing the judge, Gideon. This is just a really neat, shrouded reference to Jesus. God took Gideon, who was unknown, untrained, unimpressive, small, fearful, And he whittled down his army, right? Chopped it down to to 300 men. And through that weak and small and unexpected way, God conquered 135,000 Midianites. Freed the people of Israel from this army that they never could have defeated on their own. And did it in such a, a way that it was obviously just His grace. Christ would come the same way in humility and in meekness and through 
giving himself in death and a display of, of humility and weakness would save us from an enemy that we never could have defeated, never could have conquered. And the result is verse 5. The day will come when the, the boots and the battle clothes of the warriors would be thrown into the fire. We're done with those. Throw them off. We don't need them anymore. Um, have you ever worked a job that you really hated? Like, really hated? What's the worst job you've ever... Anyone have a good example? What's a job that you really hated? Washing dishes. <laughs> Somebody have one over here. Carney. Okay. So, uh, for me, it was, it was working on the rigs, trying to put myself through college. It was absolutely unimaginably dirty. The hours were insane. Um, the people I worked with... Um, Jesus loves them, but they were awful to me. Um, it was a brutal, brutal summer. And, and I took great pleasure at the end of that year to take my, my smelly, oil-stained clothes and throw them away. I don't need those anymore. Get rid of those coveralls. I'm not going back there. I'm done. It was this beautiful display of, of freedom. It's over. Israel had been at war pretty much its entire existence. They had fought for their existence, for their survival. Their boots and their garments weren't covered in oil or fast food grease or dirty dishwater. It was covered in blood. That was their work clothes. The blood of their foes that they had fought against and the blood of their brothers and friends that had fallen beside them in battle. That's the darkness that was all too familiar to them. And the Lord is saying, on that day, on that day, you won't be going back there. You'll be taking those battle clothes and burning them. We're done with those. We don't need those anymore. I will fight your battle and end it. You won't have to fight anymore. You can take off those battle clothes and burn them. Now, maybe you're thinking, I've heard something in the news once or twice over the past, I don't know, 50, 60 years of uh, unrest in Israel. This battle between Israel and Syria and Assyria continues to go on. One day, one day that will be brought to an end. Israel will have physical peace, physical fulfillment of that promise. But I think there's a spiritual reality here that, that the Lord is pointing to. Christ didn't come merely to bring physical peace to Israel, but to end the war between God and man. As we read about, as as Corey and and the Dyers read about this morning, as we lit this candle of peace, He came to bring real peace, to end that war between us and God, to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and to reign over this world. That's a hope worth celebrating. That's a promise so good that it, that it overpowers and wipes away the pain of darkness. I don't know what threatens your joy this Christmas. What it keeps you awake at night, the thought that you try to push out. Because if, if I dwell on that, if I allow myself to go there, I just don't know if I can handle it. That's those battle clothes soaked in blood. That's the world we live in. We, we go to war against that darkness every day. God is saying you'll be able to just burn those. The promise, the hope of Christmas is that big. 
It's that rich and full. It calls us, even those in, in deep darkness. You know, it says Matthew kind of requotes this verse. He, he kind of reinterprets that deep darkness. Those in the shadow of death. Isn't that where we live? The shadow of death just looms everywhere. You can't escape it. It has all kinds of different forms. And those who are in the, the shadow of death in deep darkness are called to rejoice. Not ignoring the darkness, not pretending like it's not there, but looking squarely and soberly at it and being reminded that Christ is better. His plan, His promises, His goodness will one day make all of this okay. That's hard to believe. I know it is. Like, really, John, it's going to make cancer okay? This is going to make the death of my unborn child or the death of my parent okay? You don't know what I'm going through here, John. And I don't. But the Lord does. He knows so much better than, than even you do what the fullness of your life will entail. And this morning, this Christmas, it's Him who's holding out this hope and saying, come and rejoice. The darkness is being pushed back. There's hope. It's worth rejoicing. Paul did not live an easy life. He understood what it meant to suffer. And he wrote that he lived in this, in this contrast, 1 Corinthians 6, 10. He said that he was as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. This, this strange dichotomy, this contrast in his life. Peter reflects the same kind of thing. 1 Peter 1, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, has caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed at the last time. And then look at the contrast here in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, that's an understatement, isn't it? Look at his emphasis. We rejoice. We have this living hope, even though right now we're, we're grieved with trials. We're called to this reality of suffering, but always rejoicing. Not ignoring, not diminishing the darkness, but rejoicing in the light in spite of it. Acknowledge the darkness of Christmas. Look it squarely in the face. Call sin, sin, and just own up to the reason that this darkness exists here. And then in boldness, we need to approach the hope of Christmas. Dare to rejoice in spite of the darkness. Dare to trust the Lord, even if you don't see it right now. Even if your heart is slow in coming along to declare, I will trust the Lord. He's good. Lean into that hope of Christmas. Allow yourself to really, truly rejoice. And then finally, assure your heart with the truth of Christmas. As we take this, this scary, dangerous move to allow ourselves to hope, how can we be confident? 
How can we be sure that we will not be disappointed? And we're not going to be let down. If fear and doubt push in, where do we go for confidence? Well, this is not about only what God will do in, in the future, but who he will do it through. Here Isaiah picks up on this theme of the, the child, the son born that would be called Emmanuel from verse 7, and he, and he builds on that, and he points forward and fills out more of who this child would be, who is this Emmanuel that proves that God is with us. It's verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is a lot packed in there. Uh, we, we could do a, a Christmas series until next Christmas. Well, let's just look at verse 6 and this child. This baby that we celebrate at Christmas. Isaiah gives him four names, four titles that describe who he is. First, he's the wonderful counselor. Some translations separate this. He is wonderful. He is counselor. I think they go together. I think we're looking at four couplets here. But I think as we look at that phrase, wonderful counselor, we, we typically, uh, we, we get a little off track. I think in our context, that translates as like a really good therapist, right? He's a wonderful counselor. Um, that's, that's not it. Um, wonderful, you, you kind of have to push that back to like its literal sense. He is full of wonders. He is the miracle worker that we're talking about here. He is the, the counselor who has the power of God behind him to back it up. And, and counselor is, is one that you would go to for wisdom. Think of a king who has his counselors. What should I do? Where should I go? How do we fight this battle? And he's saying, Jesus is the counselor. Jesus is the one with the wisdom to whom we should go. He's wise enough. He is all wise. So we ask this question, can I put my hope out there? What what confidence do I have? Isaiah is saying, he's the wonderful counselor. He is the powerful embodiment of wisdom. He's wise enough. Next, he's called Almighty God. Uh, Some have amazingly argued that this does not necessarily mean that it's God himself. Um, The same title is used as a name for God, the very next chapter, Isaiah 10, 21, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Um, Isaiah is saying very clearly, this baby, this child who will come is God. He will be the mighty God. But there's an emphasis here as well. Um, the word for God, El, um, in the Hebrew, um, it speaks of power and strength. It, it could be translated ruler, and sometimes it is used of, of kings, but it's authority and power. And yet Isaiah doesn't leave it there. He adds Gabon. This is El Gabon. Uh, He is the mighty God. That extra emphasis of strength, of power. He is the ruler who is mighty. 
He's wise enough to save us and he's able to do it. He's strong enough to do it. He is the powerful ruler, the strong Lord, the mighty God. He is the God from Isaiah 115. Our God is in the heavens and he does all he pleases. He is wise and he's strong. And then verse 6, he's the everlasting father. Everlasting is a pretty, pretty straightforward term. He's eternal. He's not going anywhere. He is unending, unshakable. And he's our father. Now the New Testament is pretty, pretty common to use this title father for God. Um, but Jesus started that. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the word Father is used for God a total of seven times. That's, that's not, a, not a lot for the, the main character of, of about a thousand chapters. But here the term Father is used looking forward to Jesus. And the emphasis here is that He cares. He cares. What, what value is it for this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, if He's not concerned about me? If he doesn't know me, if I'm just a, an insignificant piece of the, the bigger puzzle here. But this wonderful counselor, this mighty God is our Father. He knows us by name. He loves us. He cares for us individually. Like a father loves his children. He's concerned about our, our good, our well-being. He cares about you personally, individually. Even as human fathers, we love our kids, right? We sacrifice to give them good things. Kids don't understand grocery bills and how much that hurts every month, right? But but we're glad to do that. Keep them fed, keep them clothed, make sure they're loved and cherished. Boy, Christmas time, um, we sacrifice to, to give our kids things to make them happy over and above. Kids, how many of you love your dads? My kids, come on. It's not too late to return Christmas presents, right? How many of your dads love you and you think want good things for you? Yeah. We love our kids. We want good for them and we're sinful fathers. We're broken fathers. We're not eternal fathers. Jesus fills that role. He is perfect. He is like a father who never abuses, never neglects. He never loses his temper. A father that never mistreats his children. A father that's never wrong or mistaken. Never overlooks their needs. He's the perfect eternal father. What an amazing promise that is. He's wise enough to save. He's strong enough to save. And he cares about, about us. And then he's called the Prince of Peace. If you look at it, this is almost self-contradictory, isn't it? And the word prince, uh, somewhat in our language, more in the Hebrew, uh, speaks of an army commander. He's a warrior. He's a warrior of peace. Remember, Judah had been surrounded by war for many, many years. The people listening to Isaiah would not have been able to remember a time when they were not in danger of war or actively in war. They had been threatened by the northern kingdom of Israel, by Syria most recently. Now Assyria is violently taking over and and crouching in around them. But there's a warrior of peace who's coming. 
And the word peace here, of course, we talk a lot about this Hebrew word shalom. Uh, and it deserves the attention. It's not just the end of war. It's true peace. It's everything as it should be. Every piece in its place. It's wholeness, happiness, completeness. It's joy and comfort. It's, it's the absolute completion of our hope and satisfaction in Him. This wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, is bent on, is a warrior for peace. And He'll do it. He'll accomplish it. The Jews would have been looking for this child, awaiting him, they would have seen glimmers of it. Remember, they don't, they don't know who that Messiah is going to be. And so King Hezekiah came and he was, he was a lot better than Ahaz. And there's some good things there and he died. And King Josiah came and, and recovered the book of the law. And there's a revival in Israel. And, and then he died. But there's one who is coming. These were glimmers looking forward to that greater king, that everlasting father. 700 years later, 700 years of waiting in darkness to see the one that we celebrate at Christmas. And yet even Christmas, that first Christmas, was only the beginning of that fulfillment, right? This is just the tip of the spear. He would come, be born into suffering and sorrow, Like Gideon, he would win that glorious battle through weakness and gave his life on the cross. And yet here we are. And we have forgiveness of sin. We have reconciliation with God. We can't undersell that. That's amazing. But I think we can still say, where's that fullness of peace? Where's the end of suffering? When is this work going to be complete. So as we gather at Christmas, the light has come into the darkness. We need to remember it's not over yet. He's not finished here. We almost should have one more candle off to the side that would remain unlit. It's not finished business. He's coming again. That warrior for peace will come and finish what he has started. He came first in weakness, gave his life as a ransom for many. He will come again as a reigning king. He will come again in full warrior garb and defeat all of his enemies. Then, then verse 7 will be fully realized. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What a promise. What a great promise we look forward to. One final word of assurance. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Literally the God of armies. Yahweh of armies. He is passionate about this. His zeal will accomplish this. It will be done. It will be done. Do you believe that? Can you rest in that hope? Christ has defeated the darkness and one day He will come back and finish the job. As we gather tonight for our candlelight service, tomorrow morning gather around the Christmas tree, 
celebrate. There should be a richness of joy there. That is not inappropriate in spite of the darkness and the chaos around us. We should throw a party. Christ has come. He's died for us. He's risen again. But there's no sense pretending that the job is finished, pretending that everything is wonderful. There is, there is no true joy to be found there with our heads in the sand. We need to acknowledge the darkness. We need to dare to approach the hope that Christ brings in spite of that and to continually be reassuring our hearts with the truth of who this Savior is and that He's coming again. We will worship our God as we ought to. We will not be disappointed, not in this life, not in eternity. Because those who live in darkness have seen a great light, and that light will continue to shine, and it will be completed when He returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You know our lives. God, You know what threatens our joy. You know the darkness that exists just represented here in this small gathering. Illness and cancer and the shadow of death. Father, we, we confess we're sinners. Some of the darkness that we face is our own sin come right back around to bite us. Some of the darkness that we face is just a result of this sinful world in which we live. God, we are so grateful that you have not abandoned us to the darkness, but that into the darkness a light has shone. That you have come, uh, this, this child has been born. What a What a small thing, a child born in a manger, but that he grew to give himself death on the cross, God slain, that we might have life. And God, we look forward to that day when you return again, when Christ shall come and reign in power, when true peace shall be brought to this earth and we will will be with you. God, set our hearts on that. Lord, I pray as we gather this Christmas as families that we would be able to to just acknowledge the darkness. But Lord, that our hope and our joy would ring out in spite of it. Joy in a Savior that has come and a light that has shone. Lord, that you would be glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name.